Please take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, if you're visiting with us, that black Bible in the chair in front of you, go towards the back in the New Testament, find page 2 for Matthew chapter 3. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 3, page 2 in that black Bible. <clears throat> Did you, Jane, did you know that we were going to read Psalm 51? Did I tell you that? That was kind of cool, because her song was Creating Me a Clean Heart, O God. Coinky mm-hmm. dink, right? Mm-hmm. That was cool. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to read, then we'll do our study. Now in those critical days, John the Baptist came, proclaiming in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Hmm. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You children of snakes, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore make fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not make good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, as for me, I baptize you in water because of repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with inextinguishable fire. Verse 13, And Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit at this time, from this way, It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I have been pleased. In the New York Times, the article was titled, Raising children without the concept of sin. Subtitle, uh, subtitle sentence. My religious fundamentalist childhood was built around the fear of sin. My daughters don't even know the word. It's by Julia Shiras. I'm saying her last name right. Hopefully I am. Julia, sorry. She started to talk about how her daughter saw a sign with the word sin on it. And the daughter turned to her and said, Mama, what is sin? Listen to what she says. Sin. 
That tiny word that still makes me cringe with residual fear. Fear of being judged unworthy. Fear of the eternal torture of hell. Fear of my father's belt. Raised in Indiana by fundamentalist parents, sin was the inflexible yardstick by which I was measured. Actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. Listening to secular music or watching secular television, saying gosh or darn or geez, questioning authorities, envying a friend's rainbow array of Izod shirts, this type of shirt you can buy. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I had recurring nightmares of malevolent winds tornadoing through my bedroom. A metaphor I now realize, listen, for an invisible and vindictive God. She says later, after years of living a secular life, I realized that my notion of sin has evolved. As a girl, my focus was on gaining admittance to heaven. Now I believe that this life is the only life we'll know, this planet, our only existence. I'm no longer motivated by fear of an unproven hell, but by real world concerns about injustice and inequality. To me, the greatest sin of all is failing to be engaged to be an engaged citizen of the world so the lessons are about being open to others rather than closed off. Interesting. As we stood in line a few weeks ago at the Dickens Fair, I realized that my kids already knew what sin was without ever having been exposed to the unreligious weights of the word. Despite being unchurched, they're empathetic, loving, and kind, and even more, they are fearless. She did have a moral code, her daughter, One she followed not from obligation, but from her own desire to make the world a better place. She wrote this uh, during the time of Christmas, this past Christmas, and her daughter saw a caroler strolling by. She says, she kneels down and goes with her, and then she says to herself, an explanation of sin could wait. That article made me so sad in so many ways. Not just a daughter not knowing about sin. But oh, Julia, how your legalistic life was all about legalism. Not true sin. And where there is no real understanding of sin, there can be no real repentance which is part of the response of the gospel. You repent and believe. And as we come to this part in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3, which is bow down and worship the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. Today we'll see repentance, a mark of a worshiper of Messiah. Quite interesting that On the Lord's Supper Sunday, we have a message about repentance. Kind of gets you, for lack of better terms, in the mood, so to speak, to partake of the Lord's Supper. Repentance. A mark of a true worshiper of Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. I'm putting a statement for you. 
Repentance is a unique mark of a trustful worshiper of Jesus, the Messiah King of Israel. The kind of person who bows down and worships Jesus, the Messiah King, is a person of repentance. And friends, as Christians, it's not a one-time thing. You don't just repent and that's it. I think I repented yesterday about 50 times. At least that's what my wife told me. I think she repented too. Anyways, that's a unique mark of a trustful worshiper of Jesus. Repentance. You turn away. It's a 180 degree turn. Another statement for you. Jesus truly is God's Messiah King who fulfilled the patterns and predictions of Messiah and also identified with repentant sinners. Jesus identifies with us. So as we will partake of this Lord's Supper together, we will partake it with the God-man who identifies with us, repentant sinners. I mean, this, this whole chapter is about repentance. John, the messenger of repentance, giving the message of repentance. He's baptizing people as the sign of repentance. You have the religious leaders displaying fake repentance. Jesus, the spirit baptizer, baptizing people because they have repented. And Jesus, the fulfill of scripture, identifying with those who are repentant. Repentance, repentance, repentance. If you miss anything about this sermon, don't miss this word. What's the sermon about? Uh, if you say that, somebody's going to slap you. It's about repentance. Repentance. So let's walk through this. I have different points. Repentance, it's okay. I don't know how many I have. I didn't number them. I probably should have. It's like seven, six, five, something like that. Anyways, here's number one. Repentance, it's messenger and it's message. Verses one through four. Repentance, it's messenger and it's message. In those days or really at that critical time, Matthew moved out of Jesus' infant years into his adult years, his ministry. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, He's in the wilderness or the desert of Judea. By the way, a desert had a role in redemptive history as a place of refuge, of testing. And notice it says, preaching there, saying, verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Notice there's two aspects to his message. Two aspects of John's message. First, the volitional command, repent. And second, One writer puts it like this. The eschatological reality, the kingdom of God is near. It's come. Repentance means, one writer puts it like this, quote, turning of the whole person from sin to God in obedience to the message of the kingdom, end quote. Or you can put it like this. Um, You see your need. There's sorrow over your sin. You turn to God. You trust and obey. If you're taking notes, you can even write those words down. I put them, I underline them on purpose. Um, Need, sorrow, turn, trust, obey. that's, That's repentance. That's what it's all about. So you can define it. I'm gonna define it in other ways throughout the message. 
So here he comes, the messenger of repentance, giving the message to repent because the reality of the kingdom is here. Another way to display it, or to define it, excuse me, repentance was a call to radical conversion from an old way of living life to a new way of living in obedience to God. And the sign to display this was baptism. See, this is why Gentiles are baptized. When they're pri- they were going to become proselytes, going to become Jews. They would actually baptize themselves. Because there was a change. You, were, you weren't a, a Gentile anymore. You were a, known as a Jew. And we'll talk more about the baptism in just a few moments. But he says, repent. And notice the next aspect, the kingdom of heaven. Denotes the rule of God. Not merely his realm. And, and you'll see kingdom of heaven throughout Matthew's gospel. A few times you'll see kingdom of God. But most of the time he says kingdom of heaven. Uh, and he does that to avoid dishonoring the name of God. Remember he's writing to Jews. God is actively doing something. Actively ruling. It's something that happens. And it's connected to Jesus. Dot, dot, dot. It is Jesus. He is the kingdom. It's all wrapped up in Him. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's right. Here He comes. (laughs) Here He is. And in John's gospel, He says what? Behold, the Lamb of God. Right? It's near. Notice the urgency to repent. God's reign in redemptive history is here, so respond to it. And since the kingdom displays the rule of God, not really his realm, it's dynamic and life-changing, as one writer put it. So the response is repentance, confession of sin. Jesus would shortly appear and God's kingdom, so, so there's a sense where the kingdom is, is, it's future, that's true, but there's a sense where the kingdom is now because Jesus has come. John probably didn't understand it that way, and others. They would understand things to happen, everything all now. Salvation and judgment are coming together, but that wasn't how things were gonna be. Notice verse three, what happens? Uh, Matthew says this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, a fulfillment of scripture once again. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John was the one who prepared the way for Jesus by his preaching of repentance. He would prepare them to receive the Messiah King. Make ready. It denotes a road that needs to be prepared. So the Lord could travel over it smoothly, as one author put it. And notice he says, make ready the way of the Lord. In Isaiah's prophecy, he's talking about Yahweh God. So Jesus is God in the flesh. He's proclaiming the deity of Jesus here. Make the path level for him. John was trying to make everything ready for Messiah. When John proclaimed to people to repent because God's kingdom was near, he was preparing the path for Jesus Messiah to come. The message and the messenger. And notice he gives us a little bit more information about this messenger. Kind of 
creepy. Verse 4, not the kind of guy you, you know, hey, let's go get some coffee, John. Uh, John himself had a garment of camel's hair, itchy, and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Nothing attractive about that guy. Yeah, no. Nothing attractive about his attire or his food. Hey, probably me and him would probably get along in terms of food or diets. His focus was on preaching, not looking so cool. Same stuff worn by Elijah, by the way, which makes sense because John the Baptist was the second Elijah. Ate locusts, wild honey, lived a simple life. He was nothing elaborate to look at or notice. His attire and diet showed the pattern of his message. He had no concern for clothes or food. He was deeply concerned with the deeper things of life because God's kingdom was near. He he was raptured by that. He was captured by that. And he called Israel and Gentiles to think or live this way too. Don't be so preoccupied with the stuff of this world, but be preoccupied with the kingdom. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Repentance is messenger and its message. Notice another point, number two. Repentance, it's sign and it's action. Sign, baptism. Action, confession of sins. Verse five and six. Jerusalem was going out to him, all Judea, all the district around the Jordan. Large numbers of people from Jerusalem, Judea, all the surrounding area. Large numbers were coming to him. A prophet was speaking once again. God was speaking once again. Listen, listen, listen. Verse six, and they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Interesting. Baptize. Baptize means to dip, to plunge. In the passive, it means to be drowned. It signified death to a whole new way of life. This is why we are Baptists. We believe in immersion. Because that's what the word means. To be dipped, to be plunged under. Not sprinkled. Gentiles were baptized when they wanted to become Jews, proselytes. But notice something. John was baptizing Jews. Now this was a big deal. You didn't do stuff like this. And they were used to baptizing themselves. No. John was the one doing it because it was the sign Baptism was a sign of repentance, a sign that forgiveness has come. And he would baptize them, notice the end of verse 6, as they confessed their sins. As they were confessing their sins. See, John's ministry was calling Jews and Gentiles to repent of their sins, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah King. This is why we're Baptists. And this is why we don't have altar calls. We don't have altar call, invitation. We don't do that. How do sinners proclaim that they've responded in repentance? How do they do that? 
through baptism. Not through an altar call. Altar calls are not even in the Bible. It's just tradition. That's why we don't do it. I don't, know, I don't do altar calls. It's not in the Bible. Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to give people, add something to Scripture? How do people say that they become a Christian? Through baptism. That's how you do it. That's what the Bible tells us. That's the sign of repentance. So uh, repentance, it, it's sign and it's action. Sign, baptism, action, confession of sins. Point number three, notice repentance. It's fakers. Verses seven to 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you children of snakes. Well, that's welcoming. Now, many of these religious leaders came out to see John and be baptized by him, and yet, from John's reactions, it's clear that the repentance of the Pharisees and Sadducees was not deep or genuine. It was an outward show. If one did not truly repent, John would not baptize them. See that? And let me talk a little about the Pharisees and Sadducees, because you're going to see them throughout the gospel. Pharisee, the name Pharisee comes from the word which means separated. And that's how they viewed themselves. We're the separate ones. They rigorously adhered to and studied the law carefully. They paid close attention to a multitude, a multitude of rules and regulations, oral traditions. So many oral traditions, so many rules and laws, most people just gave up trying. Which is why Pharisees saw themselves as uh, superior, the above average Jew. That's right, that's what I am. They paid close attention to outward minutiae, but they bypassed the weightier, more important matters. Jesus brings us up at least twice in Matthew's gospel. Learn, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, compassion. Mercy for others. Really, both groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were all about rules. They were legalists. Like Julia's upbringing. The Sadducees rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They accepted only written scripture with an emphasis upon the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. They doubted the resurrection. They doubted the afterlife. But they're aristocratic. They had some bling bling. They had money. And they cooperated with the Romans. They liked their little political power, their establishment. So you can see why Jesus was a threat to that. He could take away their power that they had, that the Romans gave to them. So that's why John just comes at them, guns blazing. You children of snakes, who warned you of the wrath to come? Why, why, why does he say this? Because they did not really want to repent. They only wanted to escape God's retribution or wrath. They wanted to escape the punishment uh, their deeds deserve, but they had no intention of abandoning their evil ways to turn to the Messiah. It's like, get out of jail card. Did you win a monopoly? Use that. Notice how John, how he puts it in verse 8. Therefore, it says, bring forth, literally, make fruits 
that befits true repentance. In fact, make fruit that befits repentance. Now what's John saying? Is John just telling people be a really good person? No. John John did not call people to do good deeds. He called them to change the whole trajectory of their lives resulting in fruitful living. True repentance. Turning away from pride and arrogance and gossip and slander. Immorality. Debauchery. Stealing. Those things. A holy, godly life that's submitting to God with joy. True repentance means a complete change of lifestyle. And if one does not change their lifestyle, then one is not truly repentant. And John saw them not to be truly repentant, else the lifestyle would have showed it. And notice what he says here in verse 9. And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Ah, friends, here's the heart of Jewish pride. Abraham is our father. It was unthinkable that one of the descendants of Abraham would not have God's blessing as a matter of fact. In the first century, it was taught that Abraham was down there at the gates of hell and all those Gentiles are going through and Gentile, Gentile, Gentile. Oh, there's a Jew. Pluck him out. You're not supposed to go down there. Get him out of here. They actually believe that. Yet that's exactly what John confronted here. They, they, they believed they had eternal security just because they were Jews. But security in God does not rest upon race, color, or gender, male or female. No, no, no. It rests upon bowing down and worshiping the Messiah, King of Israel. Before the demands of the all-holy, all-powerful God, no one is privileged, which is why it has everything to do with trusting Jesus. Everything to do with that. But they justified the refusal to repent because of their forefather and his merits to avail them. Now, now, don't get us wrong. Jews have a wonderful privilege. Paul talks about that in Romans. To them was given the oracles of God. It's a good thing. But they fail to see something. They fail to see that God does not need them to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes. What makes us think that God is obligated to us? That's why John says, at the end of verse 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. God can raise up privileged people even from stones. Privileged people. God can do that. Nothing special about you. As we said earlier, a couple weeks ago, the gospel is not bound by race, gender, or even scandal. We are all called to bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah King. We're all called to do this. And notice what he does here again. He's still on this, uh, still on this whole thing about uh, 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 the fakers. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not make good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The seriousness of their situation. This is a symbol of destruction, of judgment. The doom was imminent. 
But notice he says, why is it at the root? I mean, when was the last time when you cut a tree down, you cut it down right at the root? You do that last, right? I mean, that's like way hard. You don't want to go down. First you cut it down and then you do the roots. Why does he say the roots here? Because not only will the tree be cut down, but its source of nourishment will also be destroyed. There's no hope for them. The message still stands. Repent due to God's rule. Else like an unfruitful tree, you will be cut down and you will be burned with fire. Look, sinners will never get away with their sin. Never. Now maybe for a time or a season. But be sure, your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. I say that to my kids, be sure. Your sin will find you out. So any tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, you sound too harsh. I'm just telling you what the text says. And not to mention the fact, the bad news always comes before the good news. There's grace and there's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why won't you respond then? Well, notice there's a next point that we have, repentance, its effect, verse 11. Notice what John says, for me I baptize you in water. John's practice of baptism is that he did it in water. Notice, it says for repentance, literally we could say because of repentance. And once again, by way of reminder, baptism was the way one publicly displayed repentance towards God. It was an expression of repentance. It pointed to a continual life change. So you kind of think of it this way, Water is bad. Water is evil. So when you go under water, it symbolizes death. I'm going down into death. I come up out of the water, and now I'm a new person. It's not an aspect where water makes you all clean and saves you. No, water is not good. It's bad. It presents evil, death, horridness, sin, judgment. That's what the water represents. So when you go under water, you die. When you come up out of the water, you're a whole new person. You've changed. That's what John's ministry was. But notice what he says here. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His successor was mightier, greater in power and strength, so much greater, John says, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. This was a job for menial servants or slaves. Come, slave, take off my sandal. This is John's humility. He says, even this service, I'm not worthy. But Jesus' ministry was one of salvation and judgment. Salvation, the Holy Spirit, and salvation, the winnowing fort. We'll look at that in a moment. Because he says, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism was in water. Jesus' baptism was in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, don't think of it this way. Holy Spirit, ah, happy, okay, good. Fire, whoa, bad, judgment, rah. No, don't think of it that way. They go together. Holy Spirit is good and so is fire. It represents the cleansing. I'll put it on the screen for you. This repentance would affect the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. This baptism in the Spirit goes with fire, which represented purification and cleansing, not judgment. Judgment comes in the next verse, verse 12. Here he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to, he's going to, uh, uh, Jesus is going to baptize you and the Holy Spirit and fire is going to be a purification, a cleansing. It's going to make you true, real, genuine, change your whole life. 
But notice repentance, its future outcome. Look at verse 12. Here's the judgment. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with inextinguishable fire. John's referring to harvest time. For all of you, Donnie, you probably know about this. You're a farmer. Farmers, all the farmers out there, yeah. What's happening? Grain would be threshed and then winnowed. I have to read this because I'm a city boy. It was separated from the husk by throwing it into the air uh, with a fork and then a shovel. The grain, which is heavier, would fall to the threshing floor, but the chaff would blow away. So notice he says, the fork is in his hand, that's imminent, the judgment will not be delayed, the wheat will be gathered in a barn, but the chaff was swept up and then burned. The wheat are those who are right with God. The chaff are those who have not truly repented. And notice he says, the fire is inextinguishable. It's eternal. Now the harvest is, once, is complete once the wheat is gathered and the chaff is burned up. Wow, what a picture of judgment. Oh wait, not supposed to be about hellfire and brimstone. Well, I gotta preach what the text says, you know what I'm saying? The time to say it again is now. If you do not repent, you will face judgment from the Messiah, King of Israel, the Lord Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I implore you, repent and put your trust in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus, your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he will save you. He will bring you forgiveness, cleansing you of all your sins. Last point. What number is this? 53. <laughs> 53. Wow, you take a lot of notes there, buddy. You're preaching next week. Repentance, it's identifier. 13 through 17. Repentance, now we come to this part. The identifier of our repentance, the one who identifies with us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, it's identifier. And I have this statement, which I think I had it up here earlier, but I'll put it up again. Jesus truly is God's Messiah King who fulfilled the patterns and predictions of the Messiah and also identified with repentant sinners. Notice verse 13 and 14. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Here he comes, arrives on the scene. The kingdom has arrived He's going to undergo the baptism ministered by John and John says, no way. No offense, Lord, but are you crazy? (laughs) You should baptize me. (laughs) I'm the sinner here, not you. What am I baptizing you for? Now, Now, did John already know Jesus was the Messiah? No, he probably didn't know that. Not yet. Not until he, as John's gospel says, not until the Spirit pointed out and the voice, then he knew that was Messiah. He knew that was the Son of God. But John did know that Jesus was greater than him. He knew that. He had greater authority than him. He knew that. But notice what Jesus says, verse 15. 
But Jesus answering said to him, let it be so now. Let us get on with the baptism now, buddy. Let's do it. And notice his statement. For in this way, it is fitting or it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Us, meaning John and Jesus. Fulfill all righteousness. What in the world does that mean? And it means this, and I, I agree with the guys who, other writers who said this, fulfill in this sense, in that Jesus fulfilled the biblical patterns and predictions of Messiah. At his baptism, both John and Jesus would fulfill scripture by introducing Messiah to Israel. That's how one author put it, which he, he does it right. In other words, it's him. Here he is. It's Messiah. Tikal. The righteousness that the prophets envisioned came to fruition in Jesus at his baptism, in that he proclaimed and exemplified that righteousness. This was a key event unfolding uh, who this Messiah would be, who he was, and who he would be, and what he would do. What would he do? He would identify with sinners. He would identify with the repentant. He would identify with us. So Jesus possibly had in mind Isaiah 53, 11, which says this. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Maybe that's what Jesus had in mind. He would identify with sinners. He would proclaim and exemplify in himself that very righteousness of God. Another way to put it, as the sermon of Yahweh, he would identify with sinners being seen as one of them, specifically in the process of salvation which he would bring to them. He pointed to the need of the people. They needed him. That's why he got baptized and that's what he means by fulfill all righteousness. And then notice what happens. You have the Trinity involved here, the triune God. Verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus immediately went up immediately from the water. Two main events happened after his baptism. The heavens were open and the voice. The heavens were open. What does that mean? Who knows? Definitely the divide between this world and the spiritual world had briefly stopped. But you see this statement, heaven's open, you see it in a lot of apocalyptic type visions in scripture. But it was the heaven's open and then it says, and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove or pigeon coming upon Jesus. So if he's a dove, then Jesus is the true ideal Israelite because in Hosea, the book of Hosea, Israel was likened to a dove. 
But he's trying to say, by this happening, this event, he truly is the Son of God who would be empowered by the Spirit for ministry. So heaven's open, the Spirit comes upon him. And then second, notice it says, verse 17, and behold, uh, 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 Matthew, he loves that word behold. Behold, 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 behold. Look, 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 look. Because he's so excited. Hey, hey, hey. He drinks caffeine and coffee in the morning. Hey, look, look, look. Behold, a voice out of the heavens. God's voice spoke, endorsing and approving of Jesus. This is my beloved son. A special relationship with the father he had. Not a biological relationship, but an eternal relationship. A strong relationship of of affection and love and, and no more silence. God was now speaking and he spoke in his son. For 400 years, God was quiet. For 400 years, God was silent. Nothing was said. The last prophet spoke and then God did not speak at all. But now he says, I'm speaking. And now I'm speaking in my son. He's the suffering servant. He's the true Messiah. And he is my son. Notice, again, endorsing, uh, approving. With him I have become well pleased. He truly loved his eternal son who truly brought the father great delight. In what specific way? His baptism. These words point us to first Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 and secondarily Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. Both, you see, the father's suffering servant, Messiah servant, but also the son of God. And so this, this baptism, Jesus' baptism, was, it was a crucial occasion for the Father to display his deep pleasure in his Son. It displayed the special relationship and that Jesus also identified with God's repentant people, with us. He's made like one of us in every way. So the eternal Messiah, Son, fulfilled all righteousness and then the Father gave His endorsement and then the Father gave His loving approval of His Son. Should we not also respond just like the Son does in obedience? To have worshipful trust in our Father. That's the sign of a true child of God, is it not? As I said earlier, So I say again, repentance is a unique mark of a trustful worshiper of Jesus, the Messiah King of Israel. The kind of person who bows down and worships Jesus, the Messiah King, is a person of repentance. What a great way for us to transition into the time of the Lord's Supper. For us to proclaim this gospel truth and to feel it, to see it, to feel it, to touch it, even to taste it the gospel. Not that the bread becomes his body or the juice becomes his blood. No, no, no. We, we don't believe that. Th- these things then don't do anything to you. But they remind you of the gospel. They remind you these things don't do anything to you. They remind you of what Jesus has done for you. 
The work has been done. Forgiveness is given. You are love. So that the Father says, this is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now you might say, hey, I'm not a member here though. Look, if you come from a church of like faith and practice and you've been baptized by immersion, partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You're, You're welcome to join us. If you're not a Christian, no, we don't think you should partake of this. Watch, observe the gospel. We also would advise you if if you have something against someone, maybe it'd be better for you not to partake of the Lord's Supper. Maybe wait the next time. Go and try and reconcile reconcile with that person first and then partake of it with us. This is a way for you, a tangible way for you to remember the gospel. And the fact that Jesus identifies with us. And to once again, renew your repentance. Lord, I repent. I I turn from my sin and I put all my trust in you, Jesus. You're the only one that can save me. And in you, I have forgiveness of all my sins. Let's pray. We do, we remind ourselves of this gospel truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you identify with us. We're sinners. And yet you are God-man, identifying with us and dying on our behalf. Your love for us is just amazing. Jesus, there's no one like you. Renew once again our passion, our desire, our love for you. Renew once again our hatred, how much we despise and we loathe our sin. Not that this, these elements will cleanse us, but reminds us of the cleansing that you have done. And so we come, as we sang a few moments ago, a broken, a contrite heart, you won't turn away. We come to you with contrition. We come to you with brokenness. We come to you in repentance. Take these few moments. Ponder, think, allow your mind to dwell on the things of the gospel. Maybe you read through some of your notes. Maybe read through portions of Matthew 3 or or other parts of the Bible that remind you of the gospel. Let your mind dwell on these things. And after a few moments, we'll have the guys come and, and they'll pass out the bread to us. Just have some time of silence for you to think and to ponder.